My name is Dr. Joshua Knapp. I'm a board-certified clinical psychologist and 21st century Christ follower. Early in life, I experienced overwhelming psychological suffering, which led me down a path of wandering away from the Christian faith in my adolescent years, reminiscent of the lost son in Luke's gospel, returning to my Christian heritage in my early 20s, my own psychotherapy in my mid-20s, and ultimately a life committed to understanding and pursuing psychological and spiritual health as I now head into the middle years of my life. Please join me as we devote each week to better understanding secular and Christian perspectives on mental health and the intersection between psychology and Christianity. Then engage in a 10-minute practice to conclude each episode drawing upon Christian meditation, prayer, and contemplation. Above all else, my aim in this podcast is to journey with fellow Christ followers, as well as those who are curious about the rich heritage of Christian psychological and spiritual insights into the human condition, doing so with humility and curiosity as we strive to cultivate Christ-likeness in all we do. Hi, this is Dr. Joshua Nabb, and welcome to another episode of The Christian Psychologist. In this 46th episode, I'd like to talk about a topic that is highly relevant for the Christian life, given it has far-reaching implications for psychological and spiritual health and dysfunction. The topic for today is compulsivity. Although we often think of it in the context of obsessive-compulsive disorder, with obsessions being the intrusive thoughts and compulsions being the unwanted, urge-driven behavior that follows to try to eradicate such thoughts and the accompanying anxiety and emotional distress, of late, researchers have started to label it on its own as what we call a transdiagnostic struggle, meaning that people who suffer from a range of mental disorders deal with compulsivity, which I'd like to focus on in this episode. So rather than dismissing compulsivity as something that only people with OCD struggle with, I'd like to make the case that many people across different types of psychological distress suffer from it, which means that Christians should attempt to better understand its ingredients and remedies within the Christian life. I'd also like to discuss Christian equivalents so that as 21st century Christ followers, we can better understand a biblical view on the topic, along with Christian-sensitive ways to relate differently to compulsivity in daily Christian life. So to start the podcast, I'd like to ask a few opening questions. What is compulsivity? And what are its ingredients? Is it merely a temporary state or a more enduring trait, a more enduring struggle? How is it related to mental health and mental dysfunction, including mental illness, disorders, and even addictions? How about spiritual health and dysfunction? What are some ways that we can relate differently to it, compulsivity, such as with detachment, which I'll be talking about in this episode, so as to improve daily living, including mental and spiritual health? What, if anything, does the Bible say about the topic? And how, if at all, might a biblical definition of compulsivity be similar to, as well as different from, secular definitions and antidotes? And lastly, what might classic Christian spiritual writings say about compulsivity and its antidote, which I believe can be detachment? And how can we use such practices of detachment to ameliorate compulsivity in daily life? So to get us warmed up here with some opening quotes, 
The great philosopher Aristotle is quoted as saying, quote, all human actions have one or more of these seven causes, chance, nature, compulsions, habit, reason, passion, and desire. The famous playwright William Shakespeare once wrote, quote, we make guilty of our disasters, the sun, the moon, and the stars, as if we were villains of compulsion. The contemporary Buddhist author Sharon Salzberg noted, quote, doing nothing means unplugging from the compulsion to always keep ourselves busy. The habit of shielding ourselves from certain feelings, the tension of trying to manipulate our experience before we even fully acknowledge what that experience is. Another contemporary Buddhist author, Robert Thurman, wrote, quote, to become enlightened is not just to slip into some disconnected euphoria, an oceanic feeling of mystic oneness apart from ordinary reality. It is not even to come up with a solution, a sort of formula to control reality. Rather, it is an experience of release from all compulsions and sufferings, combined with a precise awareness of any relevant subject of knowledge. Having attained enlightenment, one knows everything that matters and the precise nature of all that is. Turning to Christianity, writing about the early desert Christians who rejected society in the 3rd to 6th centuries and moved to the deserts of Egypt, Palestine, and Syria. The late Travis monk Thomas Merton said, quote, What these desert fathers sought, most of all, was their own true self in Christ. And in order to do this, they had to reject completely the false, formal self fabricated under compulsion in the world. They sought a way to God that was uncharted and freely chosen, not inherited from others who had mapped it out beforehand. In fact, this freedom from compulsion has often been called detachment in Christianity. And regarding detachment in the Christian life, Thomas Merton, the same author, further declared, quote, Detachment from things does not mean setting up a contradiction between things and God as if God were another thing and as if creatures were his rivals. We do not detach ourselves from things in order to attach ourselves to God, but rather we become detached from ourselves in order to see and use all things in and for God. To offer one more quote, Francis de Sales said, quote, How are you to meet the swarm of foolish, foolish attachments, triflings, and undesirable inclinations which beset you? By turning sharply away and thoroughly renouncing such vanities, flying to the Savior's cross and clasping his crown of thorns to your heart, so that these little foxes may not spoil your vines. So overall, these quotes seem to capture the reality that compulsivity can be an ongoing human struggle and get in the way with, uh, from the freedom we desire to purposely choose the directions we want to take in life. Overall, freedom from compulsivity, from my perspective, perspective, is an extremely important part of mental and spiritual health, as revealed across both secular and religious sources. For Christians, more specifically, freedom from compulsivity is necessary in order to rest in God and follow him where we'd have us go, which will be the focus of this podcast. Whereas compulsivity can rob us of our freedom, pivoting to God as 21st century Christ followers is key, which can take place via Christian detachment. But before turning to secular psychology and its understanding of the problem of compulsivity and ways to manage it, I'd like to tell a quick personal story. 
I could still remember being in the room with this psychotherapy client. She presented as distant and detached, and and I struggled to build a connection with her. Yet, over time, I came to enjoy our work together, given that underneath her seemingly aloofness was someone who was anxious and suffering. At one point, she disclosed to me, after over a month of weekly sessions, that she struggled with binge eating, often stopping by multiple fast food drive through restaurants, then secretly eating in her car before heading home to her husband for the evening. As we talked about this enduring struggle, she disclosed that she had the urge to binge eat, which was hard to control, and found it would arise after a long day at her job filled with stress and loneliness sometimes even shame. And so eventually we were able to make several key connections in her life. First, the binge eating was a compulsive habit and something she did not enjoy or want to do. Second, the urge to binge eat was a way to avoid deeper feelings of loneliness and sadness, which had been frequently present since childhood. Third, she did not have to respond impulsively and compulsively to these urges. Instead, she could just notice her inner experiences with a detached, curious awareness, including just noticing her thoughts. For example, I have to binge eat to feel better. Or maybe another thought of, I deserve to binge eat because I feel so horrible and had a bad day. Maybe even feelings, just noticing her feelings of loneliness and sadness and maybe even shame, and sensations, the sensation of hunger, for example, or tension. And over time, we worked on being more mindful of these experiences, practicing what's called in the secular psychology literature non-attachment and letting go and what mindfulness authors call urge surfing, which consists of allowing the urge to binge eat to just run its natural course, without doing anything, without judging it, but instead just recognizing that it's impermanent and need not be something we impulsively act upon. For this client, her pain did not need to lead to the additional pain of secret binge eating, which was inconsistent with her values of being open and transparent with her husband and physical health, which only made matters worse when she binge ate. The first step in the change process, though, was recognizing the compulsivity in her life. And so let's now turn to the secular psychology literature for some newer insights on this, what I believe is a ubiquitous human struggle, impulsivity, compulsivity. Although we often think of obsessive compulsive disorder when the word compulsive comes up, the word actually can be used in the context of a range of different struggles, including addictive behaviors that we struggle with to give up and are inconsistent with our values. With OCD, we have obsessions that the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders defines as, quote, recurrent and persistent persistent thoughts, urges or images that are intrusive and unwanted and unwanted and cause anxiety, end quote, along with the compulsive behavior, which is used to try to avoid, suppress, or rid ourselves of the intrusive thoughts, images, and so forth. So over time, the compulsions are a response to the obsessions, and they make matters worse. They're initially an attempt to manage our obsessions, which are distressing and intrusive, 
but they end up making life unmanageable, leading to impaired daily living across work life and family life and other areas of life. Yet beyond just OCD, compulsivity is common whenever we struggle with urges and corresponding behaviors. And this has been a focus in the secular psychology literature in recent years across different diagnoses. So what are some definitions? According to the APA Dictionary of Psychology, a compulsion is defined as, quote, a type of behavior, for example, handwashing or checking, or a mental act, for example, counting or praying, engaged in to reduce anxiety or distress. Typically, the individual feels driven or compelled to perform the compulsion to reduce the stress associated with an obsession or to prevent a dreaded event or situation. For example, individuals with an obsession about contamination may wash their hands repetitively until their skin is cracked and bleeding. Such compulsions do not provide pleasure or gratification, although the individual may experience some temporary relief from engaging in them. And they are disproportionate or irrelevant to the feared situation that they are used to, to neutralize, end quote. So they don't work. And in a recent journal article, compulsivity was defined as, quote, a tendency toward excessive and repetitive behavior. So it's a behavior. It's excessive and repetitive that is experienced as urge driven. There's an urge that's fueling it and is maintained despite being inconsistent with the person's goals and or is accompanied by undesirable consequences. So it's inconsistent with our goals, our values, how we want to live life. And it ends up causing problems, making matters worse. Ingredient-wise, then, it involves several key components. It's a behavioral pattern. It's excessive, meaning we engage in such behaviors too much. It's repetitive, meaning we act this way over and over again. It's urge-driven and impulsive, meaning we feel an urge to act, and we act impulsively even when we don't want to. And we keep engaging in the behavior even though we won't, don't want to because the behavior is not consistent with our goals, values, virtues, and so forth. And there are consequences such as addiction, work problems, relationship problems, and other ways that the behavior impairs our daily living across different life areas. Of course, in the case of obsessive compulsive disorder, OCD, the most common disorder we often think of with compulsivity, and it's diagnosed about among about 2 to 3% of the population. There's an intrusive thought that causes distress, and in response, we engage in compulsive behaviors to try to reduce anxiety and eradicate the thought or image that's intrusive. So we might, again, compulsively wash our hands in response to the thought that we're going to get germs and be contaminated, maybe get sick and die. Or we might compulsively check in with a loved one in response to the thought that they've died in a car crash or they're in danger. The problem with OCD is at least twofold. Not only do we not end up eliminating the intrusive thought or image or memory and corresponding anxiety and emotional distress, we also end up with impaired functioning, given the compulsive behaviors take up all our time and we can't keep a job or enjoy relationships, for example. Although OCD is often the vehicle for compulsive behaviors, it's not the only way we may struggle with compulsivity. So I want to think more broadly about compulsivity beyond just OCD. Compulsive disorders may include internet addiction, food addiction, shopping addiction, gambling addiction, pornography addiction, and so on. 
And this is where the transdiagnostic component comes in. Transdiagnostic meaning across diagnoses, not just confined to OCD. Rather than seeing compulsivity as just a part of OCD, researchers have started viewing it as a trait across disorders. So compulsivity has recently been measured with a specific scale, with ingredients such as the need to complete a task, the need to complete a task just right, the need to repeat a task, getting stuck with certain thoughts, having addictive tendencies, being rigid, needing to act on that habit-driven urge, getting stuck on one task and having a hard time moving on, struggling with control and struggling with needing to be the best. One recent article identified six components of compulsivity. The first being, quote, automatic or habitual behavior occurring in the absence of conscious goals. Two, quote, behavior insensitive to negative consequences despite conscious awareness of them. Three, quote, overwhelming urge or desire that impels the individual to initiate the activity and jeopardizes control attempts. For binging, or the inability to stop or interrupt the activity once initiated, resulting in an episode of substantially longer or more intense than intended. Five, quote, attentional capture and cognitive hijacking were distracted. And six, quote, inflexible rules and rituals related to task completion or execution. So there's a rigidity there. So overall, it's easy to see compulsivity in a range of psychological struggles, such as addictions and other behaviors we engage in that are inconsistent with our goals in life, our values, and who we know ourselves to be, especially if it is concisely defined as, quote, excessive or dysregulated behavior. Motivation-wise, why might we continue to engage in compulsivity despite the consequences? One possibility is that we do so to avoid some other type of emotional or cognitive distress. So with food addiction, we may eat to avoid boredom, anxiety, or depression. With alcohol abuse, we may excessively drink at a party to avoid social anxiety. Or with internet addiction, we may constantly stay online to avoid the feeling of loneliness. As another example, someone with a sexual addiction may act out sexually in unsafe situations again and again in an attempt to avoid deeper feelings of unlovability or inadequacy. As one more example, workaholics may devote all their energy to working to avoid a deeper feeling of shame or inadequacy. And with each of these scenarios, the compulsive behaviors are pursued because, possibly, they attempt to avoid, mask, wall off, and so forth, a distressing thought or emotion consistent with OCD. What happens with OCD? In terms of interventions, clinical psychologists and other researchers have designed and researched a whole host of strategies for ameliorating compulsivity. For example, with sexual addictions such as compulsive pornography viewing, research has revealed that behavioral interventions are helpful in reducing the unwanted compulsive behavior, such as viewing pornography despite not wanting to. And what's one st- such strategy for improving, or I should say reducing compulsive behavior behaviors is mindfulness, which I talk frequently about in this podcast and is quite popular in society uh, larger, and then 
more narrowly in the clinical psychology literature. And mindfulness, of course, is uh, really an approach to life, a set of mental skills that involves present moment, non-judgmental, focused attention. With mindfulness, we're, as practitioners, taught to urge surf, in fact, meaning to notice the urge in the context of addictions and compulsivity, notice the urge to engage in the compulsive behavior, but refraining from impulsively acting upon the urge. So we just ride the wave of the urge, surf it like we would body surf with a a wave without then impulsively acting. And we learn over time that we don't need to act upon it. In fact, some authors suggest that the reason mindfulness meditation is helpful for compulsivity is that it trains practitioners to just observe rather than impulsively react to mental urges. Along the way, we're simply observing the quote, arising and dissolution of impermanent thoughts, feelings, and sensations, and quote-unquote letting go of the experience rather than attaching, clinging, or trying to avoid it. We're not getting into arm-wrestling matches with our inner experiences, including the urges. So if there's an urge to view pornography, the mindfulness practitioner may simply notice the thought, feeling, and sensation, doing so non-judgmentally, without the desire to eliminate the distress with the compulsive behavior because it's unwanted. And so instead we act with intentionality. Over time, as practitioners, we're learning that we can simply allow the urge to run its natural course. It's impermanent without impulsively acting on it with the compulsive behavior. In Buddhism, which is where mindfulness comes from, we call this non-attachment given that clinging to desire leads to suffering, since everything is impermanent in the Buddhist tradition. So to improve the suffering that comes from compulsivity, we learn to relate dispossessively to our inner world, flexibly with our inner world, rather than pursuing pleasure and avoiding pain. A recent review of 26 studies with over 1,200 participants found that mindfulness-based interventions were helpful in reducing compulsive behaviors. And in the same study, it was found that depression was actually reduced too in small amounts. So to summarize, although we often think of OCD only, many of us struggle with compulsivity, whether it relates to addictive behavior with the food, I'm sorry, food, internet, drugs, alcohol, working too much, shopping too much, viewing pornography. These compulsive behaviors then can end up leading to impaired functioning, given they're inconsistent with our values and we cannot keep a job or devote ourselves to relationships around us if compulsive behaviors are done excessively. And to make matters worse, the urge to act can be overwhelming and intense to the point that we convince ourselves we have to act. Yet, interventions like mindfulness can be helpful to drive a little wedge between the urge and the action to create some space there so that we can decide what we want to do and shift towards the direction we want to take in life, not the compulsive, impulsive behavior. And so interventions like mindfulness can be helpful to practice non-attachment so that we can just notice the urge, surf the urge and the accompanying thought and feeling, let it run its natural course and refrain from acting impulsively in a manner that's, again, inconsistent with our values, with virtues, moral behaviors, goals in life, our our worldview, religious or otherwise. So as a quick example, I might have the value of physical fitness, but work a long day and come home to an empty house. 
In an attempt to combat loneliness and sadness, I may have the thought that the bag of Doritos in the cupboard will make things all better. And it'll alleviate my emotional pain. And what comes with it is an urge to act. And the thought that I cannot not act. And I deserve the Doritos. Still, with mindfulness, I can just notice the thought as just a thought. Notice the emotions of maybe sadness and loneliness with non-judgmental compassion. And maybe then in turn choose with intentionality to eat a healthy chicken salad for dinner instead because that's consistent with my values. For Christians, though, we have our own tradition, religious tradition to draw from, so we don't necessarily need to draw from Buddhist mindfulness. And we have our own version of what we might describe as compulsive behaviors, often labeled as sin, and the antidote often uh, being detachment, which which I'd like to explore next. So turning to Christianity, although the Bible does not mention compulsivity by name, it does frequently discuss humankind's struggle with sin, sin as a state and sinful behavior as an inevitable manifestation of our fallenness. So the grand narrative of Scripture suggests, going back to Genesis, that we were created in God's image to be in relationship with Him. We turned from Him. We were banished from the garden, estranged from God, and yet God gives us his son to reconcile us to him, and we will eventually be face-to-face with God in heaven. But until then, on this side of heaven, we do have sin, which is a state that we're in. And what comes with that is sinful behaviors, patterns of behavior that are outside of really who we want to be as Christ followers and God's will. In addition, with Within the Christian tradition, one response to sinful behavior has been referred to as detachment, which is really a freedom from compulsion, anxious compulsion. Therefore, building on our previous discussion a few minutes ago on compulsivity, mindfulness, non-attachment, and urge surfing, I'd like to discuss now sin, sinful behavior, and detachment as a response within the Christian tradition. So, according to the Upper Room Dictionary of Christian Spiritual Formation, which I like to quote a lot in this podcast, sin is defined as, quote, inner or outer actions or choices that reflect rebellion against God or apathy towards God. This same dictionary entry goes on to note that spiritual exercises or disciplines can, in working with God's sanctifying grace, help us when it comes to sinful behavior. Sanctifying meaning to be made holy, to be made more like Christ. And God's grace meaning God's undue effort, uh, I'm sorry, undue merit or favor towards us. We didn't earn God's favor or merit. It's freely given. And one such practice is detachment, which involves, again, quoting from the Upper Room Dictionary, quote, letting go of our attachments so that we can root ourselves in God. God becomes our guide and purpose. Or we might simply and succinctly define it as correcting one's own anxious grasping, to quote this dictionary again. With this practice, we can detach from the, quote, thoughts, passions, people, things, and events of the world in order to strive first for the kingdom of God, as Matthew 6.33 suggests. Essentially, detachment is about letting go of the inner and outer experiences we're anxiously and compulsively clutching. 
attaching to, preoccupied with, or worshiping, in order to shift our attention and our entire life itself, in fact, to God, who resides at the center of our reality. So we're detaching from everything but God in order to attach to Him, and then view everything as a gift from God. Everything is filtered through or viewed through the lens of God being at the center, the author of love, and all that is good. And we recognize that our vain, shallow, empty compulsions promise much but deliver little and will never ultimately satisfy, satiate, or help us to be sanctified into the image of Christ. Whereas our sinful behavior creates idols for us to worship and compulsively reach for, we end up lost in compulsivity, And this is where detachment comes in, which can help us to, over and over again, pivot from compulsivity to God. So ultimately, for Christians, the mindfulness equivalent of non-attachment is Christian detachment, practiced in order to, over and over again, and as much as is needed, from moment to moment throughout the day, relinquish the grip we have on our compulsions and shift toward God, who is loving us in the here and now and providentially guiding us as the benevolent king or good governor. In terms of scripture, although we don't have the word detachment mentioned very often per se, we have examples of Jesus prioritizing God's will throughout his earthly life. In Matthew 16, 24, for instance, we read, quote, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. So to follow Jesus as his disciple means we want to learn from him, emulate him, and follow his will, not our own, which requires detaching from sinful, compulsive, impulsive behaviors that are ins- inconsistent with Scripture and God's Word. Even though we may or we do live in a fallen world filled with temptations that give rise to sinful, compulsive behaviors, we can practice detachment in order to let go so that our tempting thoughts don't inevitably, compulsively, and impulsively give rise to sinful behaviors that are not Christ-like. In terms of classic Christian spiritual writings, in a widely read book, The Imitation of Christ, the medieval writer Thomas A. Kempis wrote about temptations which lead to sin, which I'd like to talk a little bit about here. According to Kempis, quote, as long as we live in this world, we cannot be fully without temptation, which means, quote, every man should be well on guard against his temptations. So for the purpose of this podcast, I believe Kempis offers a useful summary of how tempting thoughts can eventually give rise to compulsive, impulsive, and sinful behaviors that are inconsistent with Christlikeness and following Jesus' will for our lives. First, we allow a thought to enter our mind. It pops into our mind. Second, we then use the imagination to further consider the thought, to entertain the thought, to begin to ruminate on the thought, to dwell on the thought, to focus on the thought. Third, we are entertained further by the thought. And then we end up acting upon the thought with sinful behavior. And this ends up often being urge-driven and compulsive and impulsive and inconsistent with who we want to be as Christ followers. So our thoughts play a powerful role in the final display of sinful behavior if you follow its logical conclusion, which contemporary psychologists might call compulsivity, 
given these behaviors are inconsistent with our values, or we might say biblical virtues more narrowly to use Christian language. Biblical virtues meaning moral behaviors to live by. And because of this, it's extremely important to learn to monitor our thoughts, watching them with a detached awareness, what the early desert Christians called watchfulness, or nepsis in Greek. In fact, the Jesus prayer, Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me, was developed among the early desert Christians gradually as a way to practice God's presence and watch over the inner world. Given we're noticing our tempting compulsive thoughts, then pivoting toward the Jesus prayer to keep our mind on God. Interestingly, the early desert monastics ended up identifying a range of tempting compulsive thoughts, which eventually became the seven deadly sins, including pride, anger, lust, envy, gluttony, avarice or greed, and sloth or laziness. Together, they can be remembered with the acronym PALE GAS. From my perspective throughout the day, we must observe or watch our inner world so we don't end up entertaining these tempting compulsive thoughts, which can give rise to compulsive behavior or compulsivity and sin. So instead of impulsively acting on these thoughts after we've spent a good amount of time entertaining them, we can pivot towards the Jesus prayer. So with this in mind, let's turn to a simple practice, a condensed version of the Jesus prayer in order to practice a Christian version of mindfulness to notice our inner thoughts, then pivot towards Jesus's name. And in doing so, like mindfulness, we're cultivating several mental skills, including present moment awareness, letting go, non-attachment, and urge surfing. Given we're just noticing the urge to engage in the compulsive behavior along with the corresponding thought and feeling, then shifting towards Jesus again and again throughout the day. So now let's practice a short version of the Jesus prayer in order to notice tempting compulsive thoughts, then shift towards Jesus' name to prevent our thoughts from turning into compulsive sinful behaviors that are inconsistent with God's will. So when we're ready, find a quiet location, free from distractions, sitting up straight in a supportive chair, closing our eyes. And now begin to notice that you're breathing with God giving you your breath from moment to moment. There's nothing you need to do in the here and now other than just watch your God-given breath. Which takes place effortlessly with your God-given autonomic nervous system. So just notice rather than trying to control your breath, recognizing that God is with you and in control. And now begin to recite the Jesus prayer, breathing in, Lord Jesus, and breathing out, have mercy. Again and again, just try to align the prayer with your breath, breathing in, Lord Jesus, to symbolize Jesus' loving presence, and breathing out, have mercy, to let go of the tempting compulsive thoughts that give rise to compulsivity and sin.
And whenever you notice another thought emerge, just notice it. Then gently shift towards the prayer without needing to act upon the thought. Lord Jesus, breathing in, have mercy, breathing out. And as you call upon Jesus' name, you're asking for his loving kindness right now, putting your trust and faith in him to soothe and comfort you in this time of need so that you do not impulsively and compulsively act on the tempting thought and the corresponding urge. Lord Jesus, have mercy. Breathing in, Lord Jesus, breathing out, have mercy. Slowly, softly, simply, interiorly, in and out. As you notice the urge, notice the thought, notice the feeling, notice the sensation, and then just gently shifting your attention to the Jesus prayer, recognizing that you do not need to act on the urge. You can shift your focus towards Jesus when you become weak and weary because the urge is overwhelming possibly. And so when an urge to act compulsively comes up, just notice it, recognizing it's impermanent. And Jesus is with you to see you through and to walk with you through it. Lord Jesus, have mercy. Slowly breathing in and out. Lord Jesus, have mercy. Lord Jesus, have mercy. Whether it's compulsively relating to drugs or alcohol or shopping or eating or overworking or some other unwanted compulsion, just notice the initial thought along with the accompanying emotion and urge to act, then gently pivot towards Jesus' name, asking him to have mercy, that is, asking for his loving kindness to be extended to you right here and right now. Lord Jesus, have mercy. As we disconnect the thought and the action, link. Unlinking those two things together. We have a thought, we have an urge, we have a feeling, we have a sensation. That does not mean we need to act compulsively, impulsively, and sinfully. Instead, we can practice detachment by just noticing and shifting. Noticing the inner experience and then shifting towards the Jesus prayer. As we recognize, we can just observe, we can let go, we can detach, but we do not need to act. Lord Jesus, have mercy. Lord Jesus, have mercy. And as this practice comes to a close, pray to God that he will be with you throughout the day, helping you to pivot towards his powerful name, Lord Jesus, when the initial thought and accompanying urge arises so that we do not need to compulsively and impulsively and sinfully act, which can lead to regret. So to conclude this episode, we talked about the transdiagnostic struggle of compulsivity, which is a common experience and can be a central part of all kinds of unwanted, repetitive, habitual behaviors, such as overeating, using drugs and alcohol, internet addiction, pornography addiction, and so forth. 
Although the initial urge and accompanying distress, the thought, the feeling, the sensation may be inevitable. We do not need to act. We do not need to act in a way that's inconsistent with who we want to be. Instead, we can be watchful with an a detached, observant, curious, letting go attitude. We're letting go of the need to engage in behaviors that are inconsistent with our values. And for Christians, this involves detachment, noticing the mixture of urges, thoughts, feelings, and sensations, then gently pivoting pivoting towards Jesus so that we don't entertain the thought to the point that we impulsively, compulsively, and sinfully act. Accepting the reality of temptations for 21st century Christ followers is important given that the mere presence of them does not signal defeat. Rather, through spiritual disciplines like the Jesus prayer and a commitment to denying the self and following Jesus as his disciple, we're able to surf the urge and persevere, becoming more like Christ with the help of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit along the way. If you like this episode, please share it with others. Consider giving me a good rating on the various podcast platforms and join me again for another episode of The Christian Psychologist. Thank you.